Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Joel, and I'm here with radio presenter and writer Richard Feidler to talk about his book, Golden Maze. Thanks so much for joining us, Richard. It's such a pleasure, Joel. Thank you for having me. Um, this is such a fun book to read. It was like um, having the warm story, or I should, shouldn't really say warm, considering how bloody and gory the history <laughs> of Prague is, <laughs> but it was like having a storybook sort of told to you by a master storyteller. I really enjoyed it. Um, but I was curious to see why you decided to write about Prague this time. You previously wrote books about uh, Iceland in Sargaland and uh, Istanbul, Constantinople um, in Ghost Empire. What what drew you to Prague this time? It's a book I've been meaning to write for about 30 years. I It, it comes out of my experience of being present in the aftermath of the Velvet Revolution, which was the democratic revolution that took place in, in Prague in 1989 and spilled over into 1990. This was a time when a whole range of police states in Eastern and Central Europe just fell over in the year 1989, uh, a kind of a miracle year. And it really brought the Cold War properly to an end. And it was all happening. All this was unfolding when I was living in London. I was performing with comedy group, the Doug Anthony All-Stars at the time. We had a London theatre season in late 1989. And I was watching footage on the BBC of the Berlin Wall falling, of all these thing, amazing things happening in Poland and Hungary and, and, and East Berlin. And I was just longing to be there. So the moment that our theatre season ended, I got on the plane with my girlfriend at the time, Josephine, and we arrived in Berlin and, and then in Prague. Prague is where it was so completely joyful. It's hard to describe it. It was one of the most moving and happiest moments of my my life to be there in what I think is the world's most beautiful and weirdly enigmatic city, which was having a revolution where a decrepit police state was overthrown, which was a government that was the vassal of another country, the Soviet Union at the time. They'd, had, they'd re re recovered their independence and their democracy, and their new leader was a hippie playwright a former dissident named Václav Havel, who had an international reputation as a writer and an essayist and as a playwright, who was the new president. This is a guy who made Frank Zappa an advisor, who invited Lou Reed to Prague Castle to perform, uh, a man of absolute incredible decency and unimpeachable moral integrity, who'd gone to jail. He'd been in jail for served prison sentences of longer than four years to oppose the regime. And suddenly this lovely man is the president of this magical kingdom which had been so gloomy and depressed after 40 years of Soviet-style communism. This was an unusually, incredibly joyful time. And I liken it to being in love at the time. You, um, I don't know if you've, how often you've been in love, Joel, but, but the, you, <laughs> when, when you're in love, you get that feeling of, of, uh, that, that feeling of being excited and relaxed at the same time. Mm. of waking up every day going, what's going to happen now? What's going to happen today? This is incredible. And that's how it felt to be in, in, in Prague in this joyous aftermath of this brilliant revolution. And I never forgot it. And the other thing that really um, struck me powerfully at the time was the sheer weirdness of the city. Prague then wasn't the kind of polished and prettified sort of tourist mecca that it, it, it subsequently became. It was still really grimy and covered with uh, scaffolding and construction works. The, the reconstruction wasn't keeping up with the, the rate of decay. 
but even so, it felt so beautiful and mysterious. And it had this rich history to it. Extraordinary monuments like the Charles Bridge, the Astronomical Clock, the Old Town Square, the Car- Prague Castle, uh, St Vitus Cathedral that seemed quite magical to me. And so I, I think I write all my books as a way of finding out about things for myself. And that's what I w- I've wanted to do for the longest time, to write a book about Prague. That That is a great reason to do it, <laughs> because it does feel like this um, sort of slow exploration of its history. You start really early. Um, did you always have this idea of calling it sort of a biography of Prague, or did that come later in the in the publishing process? Um, that's I I wanted to write a personal a history with a bit of uh, like the other books I've I've written or co-written. There's there's a bit of me in there as well as the history and a, 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 and also some mythology as well. Uh, it was my publisher Brigitte who suggested I call it a biography of Prague, and I was quite pleased with that. I I think it's much better than a history of Prague. It, it suits it because it, it's it's quite a personalised take. I've been pursuing the various aspects of its history that particularly interest me, and a lot of my own private obsessions are in the book. For example, I write quite a lot about alchemy in the book, which is one mm. of the great pseudosciences that persisted up until, well, even beyond Isaac Newton's time, actually, which was this this idea that the world is made up of, it's a puzzle, it's made up of secret correspondences, magical correspondences between all things that are created by God, and the alchemists can find them through the inter- inter- interaction of metals. And so alchemists would have workshops, and the emperor uh, during the Renaissance, Rudolf II, set up alchemist workshops at the castle, and they were all over the city, where, where clever and learned men wanted to find a way to turn base matter into gold. Uh, really, all of that was, it attracted a lot of charlatans and crooks, and of course, none of it ever worked because <laughs> it can't work because it's not a proper science and all right. of them shrouded in secrecy and magical writing and mystery so people thought they were always just this close to it just this close to finding this way of transmuting base matter into gold but of course they could never do so nonetheless the real secret project the genuine project of alchemy was the refinement of the human soul to turn the base matter of the human soul into gold by containing uh, creating a kind of a union of opposites which is a really very beautiful idea. And all these ideas were sort of put in very mysterious alchemical drawings, which have always fascinated me. I have books and books of them on my shelf. And because alchemy was such a feature of Renaissance Prague, it was lovely to write about that. It was lovely to write about uh, how magicians were attracted to Prague, like John Dee, Queen Elizabeth I's uh, magician who came to Prague. The, the, le- the founding legend of the city was that there was a, a witch princess named Labusha who said, who stood on the edge of a cliff and said, I see a great city, its glory will touch the stars. And this was the thing that I found again and again, is that is that people have come to Prague looking to try and touch the stars in one way or another, or explain their motion, or find the hidden correspondence between everything in the universe and itself. And uh, many of these were astronomers as well, like Johannes Kepler and Tycho Brahe, who Johannes Kepler was in Prague when he discovered the true nature of planetary motion. And Einstein was in Prague while he was coming up with his uh, general law of relativity. So th- this is an ongoing theme, and writing about the history in a more personal way like that allowed me to pursue my own personal interests and obsessions that are sort of little side streets and and the odd dead end, if you like, that that emerge from this this extraordinary city that is right in the heart of Europe. That's so interesting that um, the alchemy section, which I found fascinating, uh, it, it's an it's a great metaphor for the city in a lot of ways because it feels like it was this from from a very early stage in its history a melting pot city 
that is pro- probably more, more recognizable to a modern uh, you know a modern people than than other parts of medieval Europe um, and I wanted like I loved that story you tell <clears throat> about the soldier who was discovered as possibly Viking and then became <laughs> Slav and then became <laughs> Germanic and then became Slav again depending on the the changing political tides um, did you did you did that come the idea of Prague as melting pot come out of your research or was that something you were aware of when you went into it? I remember the first time I went to Prague during the Velvet Revolution was part of that inevitably you go to the Jewish quarter of Prague which has the old new synagogue there which dates back to the 13th century and the Jewish town hall this lovely renaissance building that has a clock that runs backwards there's two clocks on its face one one clock tells conventional time with normal numerals around it but then there's a hebrew clock with hebrew characters and because hebrew runs right to left not left to right the clock spins backwards and that's just such a weird and fabulous idea that one building would have two clocks that travel in different directions that arrive at exactly the same moment in time together but the thing that really struck me then and still strikes me today when i'm in the jewish quarter of prague is a perfectly tragic sense of absence jewish people were part of the life of that city almost from the get-go and it wasn't until the holocaust that it really properly came to an end there are still jewish people living in prague today but they're very few there's a jewish restaurant there what you feel is this profound sense of absence and tragedy because of course uh, once it was invaded by the Nazis in 1939, Prague, uh, the Jews were expelled, sent to Terenzin concentration camp, and a great many there were, were sent from there to Auschwitz, where they died. So there's an absence there, because Prague was a city founded really on three people living, three peoples living, sharing the city together. There were, of course, the Czechs, the Slavic, the Western, Western Slavic people, the Czechs, who speak the Czech language. There were the Bohemian Germans who spoke German or Czech as well. And there were were the Czech Jews living in the Jewish quarter who interacted. Sometimes they intermarried. A great many Germans and Czechs intermarried. That's certainly true. And there was this kind of mix. There was always a tension between the three groups. And very often there were pogroms, attacks on the Jewish quarter. But it was this melting pot of a city for a very long time, which is appropriate for a city that's at the crossroads of Europe. But after, during the Nazi occupation, the Czech, uh, the Jewish population was largely murdered. And then after the war, the Czechs took their terrible revenge against the Germans for having their cousins from across the border in Germany invade and take, take them over by expelling the Germans very cruelly and en masse from their country. And so then the Germans left and it, the city became much more Czech and more unto itself. And in 1993, the Czechs and the Slovaks went their own way. They had a thing called the Velvet Divorce as opposed to the Velvet Revolution where <laughs> Czechoslovakia split into two nations, the Czech Republic and Slovakia. And so this was the thing that bothered Václav Havel. He, he, he didn't like this process of increasing Czechification, if you like, even though he himself was Czech. He said, this will, this will make us more chauvinistic, more like little, little, little Czechs, he said. Uh, living in our own little garden with no one to disturb us, which would make them smaller and narrower. Uh, but of course, it's a city open to the world now. But I, I think it's not been able to resist that kind of chauvinism, which is common to 
a lot of European nations. So yes, that incident you mentioned there, the uh, the uh, the warrior's grave, it was was a, a fantastic story which illustrates it perfectly. The discovery of a, a grave in the nineteen twenties, thirties, in uh, the courtyard of Prague Castle, of a figure going back to the foundation of the city that was had grave goods, including a Viking sword. And at first, they wanted to claim it as a Czech, a Czech warrior, a Slavic warrior. And then when the Nazis invaded, they went, well, clearly it's got a Viking sword. That means this guy was Germanic. Therefore, we own Prague and we have every right to be here and to take over Prague Castle. And then once the Nazis were kicked out, kicked out the Russians came in and they went, they said, you have to change that again because that guy has to be a Slav now. And <laughs> so these reports went back and forth. When the truth is, of course, we don't know the whatever the, the uh, ethnic origin was of this, this warrior that was found buried in the grounds of Prague Castle. Yes, he had a Viking sword, but he had other Czech grave goods, Slavic grave goods around him. So what he was, was most likely a Central European living in Central Europe, using the best tools available at the time, regardless of their ethnic origin, which uh, seems to sort of speak about a larger truth about to Czech chauvinists and German chauvinists about who is who, who is who can be separated out, who owns Prague, who owns Bohemia. Uh, those conversations inevitably become absurd until someone arrives with an army and says, I own this place and the rest of you have to leave. Yes, <laughs> which is the which is largely the story of the book is uh, grand massacres from one army to another in, in this tiny um tiny but extremely central country to the history of Europe. I, mm -hmm. I wondered, I, I loved the bit at, at the beginning where you described, even though I'd been to Prague a number of times to visit family, um, I didn't think about the fact that, yes, of course, Prague is closer to London than it is to Moscow. And it's actually, and people there don't think of themselves as Eastern European, even though I think people who have never been there or even people who have do think of them as Eastern European because of the Slavic roots um i loved this idea that in the store in the story of this book they play this central um role in all of european history and so it gives you an opportunity to sort of flow in parts of 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 the whole of europe's history was that intentional or was that just because you had to tell the story and so therefore it was at the center of things well, it's funny, you know, it, it only after I started writing, I realized something, it, which was that my first book, Ghost Empire, was a history of Byzantium based around the city of Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, which is famously a city on the threshold of Europe and Asia. You know, when you're in Istanbul today, you can get a ferry to Karakoy and straight away you're in Asia, you're in Asia Minor. That's that's you've crossing the, the Bosphorus means you've gone from the Europe, what is strictly speaking Europe to what is strictly speaking Asia, which is a really odd idea. So that's a, that's the city on the absolute periphery of Europe and Asia. And the second book that I co-wrote with my friend Karl Gislas and uh, Sagerland is Iceland, which which is on the threshold of of Europe and America. And arguably, you could you could even say it's the first New World country that Europe settled uh, beyond its own shores, ahead of the Americas. So there's there there those first two books take place on the periphery, whereas this book takes place at the very centre. I found this lovely illustration of which which drew a picture of Europe as a kind of a queen, uh, where her hat was, I think, is England or something like that, and her arm is Italy and so and so, and the beating heart is Bohemia with Prague at its centre. So it's always been this kind of place, uh, a crossing point, uh, a meeting place for various people speaking different languages, interacting, arguing, getting along, not getting along, uh, having sex, 
going to war, uh, reading each other's newspapers, uh, sparking ideas from one another, uh, which is why its cafes and bars are so lively and have always been so lively and are so much fun to be in. And there's always a bit of a mix of this and a bit of that going on in a place like that, which uh, I love those places. I love those crossover points where cultures interact and talk to one another and uh, and come up with hybrid ways of being in the world. My wife, Kim, was born in Singapore, migrated to Australia with her family when she was 10. And, you know, Singapore's like that too, this amazing sort of place where all these different people came from all over the world, settled there and interacted with one another. Chinese people, Indian people, uh, Malay people, uh, Jewish people, Arabic people, English people, Scottish people who have interacted and learnt something from each other, swapped ideas and cultures, gotten along, not gotten along, gone to war, not gone to war, all that sort of thing. Those places tend to be hugely interesting to me. So, yes, that was always part of the intention of writing about the book about, the, about such a place. Mm. Yeah, it really comes across. And I, th I think there's this sense reading it that you're sort of delving, if you've ever, as a most Westerners in, uh, in Australia, would have grown up with stories of medieval history at some point, but it feels like you're delving into the, the, real, the real mythology, that you, you do a great job of like drawing you in with mythology and then saying, ah, not, not quite true. Like, uh, for example, the astronomical clock yeah. which I visited myself and was told by my uh, stepsister-in-law uh, who is a travel guide there in Prague <laughs> the whole story about the eyes being put out and uh, I just when told my partner about that very point in the book <laughs> where you tell tell us that it's not actually true that this, this wonderful clock <laughs> this um, was an ongoing this thing. great mythology I mean, behind there are so it. many powerful stories uh, that come out of Prague, legends uh, that that have changed the way people see the city that aren't true, that are just not true. They're great stories, though. They're wonderful stories. They're really, really powerful. Today, those stories that are the story I mentioned of Labusha standing on the cliff saying, I see a great city, its glory will touch, touch the stars. There's no evidence that Labusha ever existed. Mm. Uh, she made, uh, the legend says that she she married a, a humble plowman called Plochemisil, and he gave his name to Prochemisli line of, of, of dukes and kings of Bohemia. Now, there was definitely a, a dynasty called the Prochemislids, but whether the first Prochemisil was this farm boy who married the, the witch princess Labusha, well, who knows? Maybe, maybe there's some kind of corresponding truth there or something half-remembered. And in any case, the guy who wrote the story in the 1100s, Cosmos of Prague, he knew, he'd heard these folk tales about the founding of the city by Labusha, and he was also quite well read in the classics. He'd read the Aeneid and uh, and the Odyssey and the Iliad, and he took a lot of stories from it and just sort of imposed them onto these Czech folk tales to give them greater grandeur and dignity. Uh, so, <laughs> so the, disentangling the story from the reality is very difficult with Prague mm. and the Czechs, particularly because the stories have so much power and they have so much influence. And the, the best example of that I could find was something, a chapter I had to, a part of my book I had to write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite as more information came to life, was the story of the incident that sparked the Velvet Revolution. The Velvet Revolution in 89 was sparked by a student march. It went from Vichyrad uh, Fortress down into the one of the main uh, boulevards of Prague, Narodny Street, which was stopped by a line of riot police and Red Beret paratroopers, who then just laid into these, these students with... Uh, plexiglass shields, batons, truncheons, uh, 
and tore the clothes off some of them to beat them. Uh, it was a vicious, bloody, hideous beating. Uh, a Chicago Tribune journalist had her head cracked open. A cameraman was thrown through a window. It was terrible violence that profoundly shocked Pragas. And it was this that made them think, we can't put up with this shit any longer. This is, this is enough's enough for the, from the regime. Well, there was a story that circulated afterwards that, that someone had been beaten to death that day. A student called Martin Schmidt had been beaten to death by the riot police. And that was really the thing, the catalyst for Praga saying enough is enough. We have to get rid of this regime. And the regime just denied it. They said, we haven't beaten anyone to death. We, and they found a couple of students called Martin Schmidt and put them on TV and said, there, they're, they're alive. We didn't, our people didn't beat anyone to death. But of course, they weren't believed because they told so many lies over the years. And there was a memorial uh, shrine set up for Martin Schmidt in Narodny Street where he was said to have died. But there was no Martin Schmidt. The man they'd seen carried off was a guy called Ludwig Zifchuk, who was a young secret police agent. Now, he later told the story, was that, which was that the whole thing had been rigged. The whole thing had been staged. He had been instrumental in getting the student, infiltrated the student movements. He had directed them to go to march into Rodney Street, where they'd meet the police to be beaten up. He said he'd been told to act dead, play dead, and to be carried off so that this would spark, uh, this would embarrass and humiliate the government of hardliners. The hardliners would be overthrown and replaced by reform communists, which would keep the regime in power. That was, the, that was the, the, the complex conspiracy he said he'd been a key part of. And this was widely reported in the West. Very respectable journalists and historians have repeated this story, that the Velvet Revolution, the incident that sparked it, was completely faked uh, and orchestrated by the secret police, which is a really great story. And that was my first draft. And I sent it to my Prague editor, <laughs> a guy, a friend of mine in Prague, who looks over this, I just wanted to run stuff by him to, to make sure I... I, I got some things straight, and he said, you can't print that story. And I said, why not? He said, it's not true. It's not true at all. Ludwig Zifchak was just a guy who's big noting himself. He he had no real role to play in any of this. Yeah, he was a secret police agent. Yes, he'd infiltrated the, the student movement. Yes, he'd been dragged away unconscious, but genuinely unconscious because he'd been caught up in the fighting and the secret police hadn't recognised him as one of their own. He'd just been clubbed down and he was just sort of inventing a role for him. There was a parliamentary inquiry into the whole thing that said he'd made it all up. So, But nonetheless, this to me is the supreme irony where fiction becomes real, real enough to change a government. So this is the supreme irony for me is that the death of the regime was brought, the regime was brought down by the death of a fictional character. I mean, only in Prague could such such a weird thing take place. That's such a brilliant story, and it does seem to really represent what the, the sort of mix of myth and, and and history that sort of permeates the whole the whole history of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, another historical artifact of Prague that I learned about when I went there from you know my father in law talking about it and uh, and my partner is the is the constant use of defenestration to remove the enemies <laughs> various enemies in Prague. Can you tell us a bit about? Um, I saw a tweet of yours early on. Someone asked you about defenestration and you said you were proud to admit there are 172 instances of defenestration in the book. It isn't Look, quite true, but, but an excellent myth-building exercise. I, I might have exaggerated that number somewhat. <laughs> yes, Prague, keep, uh, defenestration is taken from a Latin word, which means from the window, defenestra. Uh, means Literally, it's a process where you begin uh, a, a political uprising, finds its, its expression when people break into the castle, 
They grab hold of the offending ruler or bureaucrat and throw him out the window. And if he survives the fall, well, well and good. If he doesn't, too bad. Uh, because his his behaviour has been so bad, we had to do it to him. So there was a there's there's been many defenestrations of, of well three major ones that I record in the book. There's the first one that is uh, takes place to trigger a major religious rebellion of the Hussites. This, these were these are people who preceded the the Lutherans in they were really truly probably the first Protestants. They were actually Czechs. That that took place in the new town hall uh, in the 15th century. Then there's the second defenestration of Prague, which is the thing whereby uh, several bureaucrats of the Habsburg Emperor were thrown out the window uh, in, in Prague Castle. That's that's quite a terrifying story with a, a quite amusing side thing to it because the the protesters got into the council chain the, the 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 governor's chamber at Prague Castle, grabbed these two offend, offending bureaucrats and threw them out the window. And they were said to have survived because they landed into a gigantic heap of manure that was at the <laughs> bottom of the, of, the, uh, of the window there. So the Catholics, who were the people who were being defenestrated at the time, they said, well, it was the saving of the, birth, the Blessed Virgin Mary interceded, and she deliberately put the manure there to break their fall. <laughs> so it was God's will that these councillors should survive their fall. And of course, the Protestants just went, no, they just landed in shit. That's all. That's what really counts. <laughs> no one meant to land in shit. So, so that's, a, a, that's the second major defenestration. The third one is much sadder. It's a much sadder story. Uh, this concerns Jan Masaryk, who was the foreign minister of Czechoslovakia. He had his office in a, a place called the Chernin Palace near Prague Castle, which is where the foreign ministry is today. And he was a decent man and a Democrat. Uh, he was uh, the foreign minister after the Second World War once they'd got back a kind of degree of independence after the Nazis had been kicked out of Czechoslovakia. But in 1948, there was a communist coup d'etat and the country pretty much became the vassal state of the Soviet Union. Not long after that happened, Masaryk, who was not a communist, he was the last non-communist really in the ministry. He went to bed uh, one night in his office, in his little... Um, apartment, which was next to his office in the Chernin Palace. And at dawn, he was found dead lying on the pavement outside his bathroom window. He appeared to have fallen from his bathroom window. The communist propaganda at the time said, oh, he'd committed suicide. He was so upset and angry with America, which seems unlikely. Uh, a friend said that he, he was depressed and committed suicide. But, you know, he kept a gun under his bed and he had tons of bottles of sleeping pills. Why would he do that rather than why would he push his portly flame frame out of a tiny bathroom window rather than just take a, an overdose? Um, yeah, it seems so political, it's doesn't it? Now that he was, it, it was, it wasn't so much perhaps the, the secret, the STB, the Czech secret police, but it was most likely the NKVD or the KGB or whatever it was called at the time. I've been called the MGB. I'm not sure. It always changed his name, but the, it was Soviet agents, very likely, that murdered him, grabbed him, pushed him out the window, and killed him. My friend Marek Toman, who works in the ministry, showed me the spot where he was killed and also the bathroom where he was pushed out the window. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's commemorate. That's, that's, it's a known space now. And it was a tragic death because he was a fine and decent man, Jan Masaryk. So, yes, so I suppose my advice to you is if, um, if you're going to make pra trouble in Prague when you go there, just don't get too close to the windows. 
<laughs> yes, one of the quotes I saw about Masaryk was, he was such a tidy man that when he jumped, he shut the window after himself. They're funny people. They are, they are. They have the blackest sense of humour. And uh, every time I go to Prague, I end up crying with laughter, you know. <laughs> you'd have to you'd have to have a dark sense of humor it's often blackly funny it's often anti-authoritarian it's one of the reasons i love the place so much yeah uh it it is brilliant and the book is brilliant too um i just want to thank you for the time you spent with us before you leave though i wondered if you if you have any idea of what your next uh given that we might not be doing much traveling uh, as a as a people in australia for a while, I'm. I'm <laughs> this is some of the only traveling that we get to do. Um, I, I was very intrigued by your uh, cryptic mention of Singapore, and I wonder if that's a, <laughs> a next book for you in this in this type of mold. I'm in the process of nagging my wife to write that book. I wanted <laughs> to write a book on Singapore. She could only she can write it as far as I can tell. She, a book. Her family's got such amazing history. Her family being caught up in the Japanese occupation of Singapore during the war. Uh, family members have memories of that, uh, and it's twined that with the kind of mixture of cultures that was there, and also the incredible food that comes out of there. Like my wife is a brilliant cook, but the family tradition is to make that amazing nonya food or pranakan, as it's sometimes called, mm. style of food that mixes up. You know, sort of. Chinese styles of cooking with Indian spice and Malay spice. It's really quite distinct and supremely delicious. It's super tasty. So I don't know. I'm trying to nag her into doing that. Um, so I think that, that ought to be her that writes that book. It won't be me writing a book about Singapore. I've got a few ideas wrapping around. One is something similar to the kind of histories I've written in the past. Another, uh, another couple of ideas are quite different. I'm just sort of letting them play around. And certainly talking about the golden maze is helping me figure out exactly what I want to write next. So I've got a few ideas and I'll just see which idea I keep returning to like a hungry dog. I think. Mm. Well, I'm sure whatever it is, we'll be fascinated to read it. And I hope to talk to you again at that point. Thanks again. So I much hope for so. Too. That would be lovely. <laughs> and uh, if you are interested and you should be in the golden maze, you can get it on booktopia.com.au or your local bookshop. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au